Amen. Good morning. It's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and today we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to the lovely and large book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 33. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to have those words on the screen. Please don't panic. We'd love to give you a Bible on your way out, too, so you can be reading a modern English translation of God's Word. I do need you to listen quick today. I've got a lot to cover. This is going to be our last sermon in this Sacred Calling series. And if you're going to do a last sermon, you've got to say all the stuff you haven't said yet. So I've got to say a lot. That means you've got to listen quickly or, or try to listen well. I know some of that's on me to be compelling. But help me out. Today, in Isaiah, we're seeing the God that we have to look up to, the King who is our salvation. And the reason I want us to see this and the reason I want us to understand it is because worship is not just something to make you feel good. Worship is supposed to be the thing that fixes all these other problems. Worship is supposed to be the thing that addresses, I think, what has been a pretty big gap in a lot of this series. You know, we talk about work. We talk about all the problems with work. We say it's good. God gave it to us, and it's lovely. It's wonderful. It's His good gift. It came from before the fall. But that as we rebelled against God, and we became cursed, and the world became cursed, our work became cursed. We talk about thorns and thistles. Instead of gardening and having beautiful fruit and vines and trees grow and become more lovely, we now live in a world where instead of beautiful, good-smelling, wonderful things, what comes up out of the earth is thorns and thistles. So then we've talked about how we become redemptive agents, that God is going about redeeming his world, changing it from broken to fixed. And that he did that primarily through the cross, but we were kind of involved in taking that same redemption out. So we work with all these other sort of ideas. We're working for the glory of God, working for justice in the world. We talked last week about how we work and know that the thing that we do, that we're actually doing, is God's providential way of providing that thing, that service, that good to the world through your however many hours a week. Yeah, we talked about how God can use your money, that some people do business for mission. They get a lot of money, and then they give a lot of money, and that money is used to facilitate exciting, interesting ideas for taking ministry all over the world. Wonderful. Then we kind of briefly mentioned what I think is everybody's sort of idea of how you work for the glory of God, which is to share the gospel with people. We say that people are saved by believing in Jesus. That means they need to hear about what Jesus has done in order to believe it. That means we have to go and tell people that message in order for them to believe it. And the people that you work with, you spend a lot of time with. You give them a wonderful opportunity to see who you are, how you do what you do, and why you do what you do. So you're building a bridge, a relational bridge. You're becoming a three-dimensional being to them. You're not just a sandwich board in the street screaming. You're, you're an actual human with a story, with loves and fears and hopes, and they see that. And so now you can speak as that person and tell them about the Jesus that you serve. But if you're going to comprehend all of this, if you're going to start to apply all of this, you need a power source. If what we've said to this point makes sense, if what we said to this point is biblical, 
meaning it has authority for people who believe that God is God. We need some way to keep going with it, to to get excited about it, to have what we're doing be invigorated by a great deal of like energy and, and power. Well, that's what I want us to do. I'm going to give you lots of reasons today, but I'm only going to give you one activity, one command. And that is to look to the king. I want you to see it. Look in Isaiah 33, verse 2. So Isaiah is a book that was written by a prophet named Isaiah, and he's prophesying about a lot. But as he's prophesying, he's in the southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel is being overcome by Assyria, this massive nation that was above, uh, north of the people of Israel, and now they're threatening Judah and Jerusalem. They're threatening what is left of the people of God. And if you go into chapter 36, which is right after this, you get this insane story that's sort of a hinge point for all the book of Isaiah. But in verses, uh, in chapter 33, you, you have Isaiah addressing the people as they look to their enemy and look to their king. They see Assyria. They see this massive gobbling monster that's at their northern border and about to consume them. And they see their all-sovereign God. So they model for us how you look to the king. Let's look at it together. Isaiah 33. We're going to start in verse 2. We're going to skip around a little bit just out of concern for time. But it says in verse 2, O Lord... Be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in times of trouble. Okay. They're describing how every morning you look up to the Lord and you see him as your salvation in time of of trouble. It seems kind of silly to compare whatever your trouble is with, you know, an invading army. But while God's grace does cover even those giant things where you're worried about your land being burned and your children being taken and put into slavery, you can also trust God with smaller things, with lesser things, with things that you might be fearful about, like what it's going to be like to actually try and share the gospel in your workplace. What it's going to be like to maybe make even a career change because you're going to, it's going to allow you to serve people better. Ooh. Fear-inducing. What do you do? How do you do it? Well, you look to this king. You see him as your salvation in time of trouble. You have to see him, though. And the foundation of all that's going to come back to our understanding of salvation. I can't emphasize this enough, so I'm just going to emphasize it every week until I'm dead. You and I are constantly shifting from the salvation that God has given us through Christ to something more like a salvation that we make for ourselves or earn for ourselves. And you can pshaw at that, and you can check the right box on every theological test we ever give you about how you're saved by grace, not by works. But I'm telling you, your life is filled with the thorns and thistles that come from living as though. It depends on you and not on him. I want to emphasize that a little bit. I want you to think about the Olympics. Okay. Think about the Olympics, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. Now let me tell you about pastors. So pastors generally fit into two categories. They can either be fun or right. They can either be like, 
exciting kind of jock type, socially, you know, adept people. They were kind of at the front of the charge of whatever's going on in high school and it's just never stopped. Or they can be the sort of dusty, nerdy, bookish, theological guys. You know, these guys, their sermons are like pep talks and everybody's like excited. You're not sure what he said, but you're pumped. Then these guys are just, you know, it's a little slow. It's more like a lecture. You know, the, the outline makes a lot of sense. There's lots of therefores throughout. And, and it's good. And God gives all types. And I'm very, very thankful for both types of men who have made huge impacts on my own life. I'm a little of both. Not very good at either, but this is what you have. I sat through a conference, though, while I was getting trained when I was in seminary. And our seminary president was one of the speakers at the conference. And he's very much of the nerdy type. He's a seminary president, I've said. He was very much of the nerdy type, and he got up to speak, bow tie affixed, fountain pen like full to the brim and in his pocket. And as he spoke, he tried to quote from a sports movie. Now, the one time he's not right is when he tries to quote from sports movies, and he promptly misquoted it. But if you've ever seen Chariots of Fire, old, old movie, beautiful story. In it, a Christian named Eric Liddell is an Olympic runner. And it's just sort of displaying his pursuit of excellence with his understanding of God and worship. And so the speaker is, is preaching or speaking or whatever, and he's, he kind of offhandedly tries to quote Eric Liddell from the movie. And he says, I run to feel God's pleasure. Misquoted. He finishes his talk, you know, thank you, Dr. Muller. And then another guy comes up, one of the more jockey type of pastors. Fun, not always right. And you can see the glee in his eye as he had the ability to then correct the seminary president guy. And he said, uh, actually, thank you so much for those wonderful words, but Eric Liddell did not run to feel God's pleasure, which would be what we call legalism. The idea that, that you're going to do something, and if you do it, if you do it right, if you do it well, then finally God will, what, like you? bless you, tolerate you, maybe forgive you. The quote from Liddell is actually that when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. It seems like a small distinction, but it's heaven and hell. Now think about the Olympians that we've been seeing on television that, that live here. You know, so many of these people that are over in China right now, they're like from Utah. You could probably go and find these people. They have pursued excellence. They've had to give up everything for this one ideal. If you watch it and decide you want to be an Olympian, you're too late. You should have started when you were two years old. You're already way too far behind. You'll never catch up. They've given up everything. To do a task. Now, why? We are now called as believers to give everything. Take up our cross to follow him. Give everything for this task. Now, why? Is it for a joy in what we're doing? Those people have given up so much, they've bound themselves to this slavish training schedule, but that slavish training schedule has allowed them to fly. They now have the ability to safely do these jumps where they just... 
go up into the air and do flips and flops and all kinds of cool, you know, things, and then land, and wow, and I'm not even sure how they're going to stop, and they're not even worried about it. They're looking at the score while they stop, because they're going from 60 miles an hour to nothing, and they have this freedom born of their discipline, born of hopefully their love for that freedom, that beauty. Do you have a love for what you do because you're able to do it out of an overflowing joy? What God has done in you and now you are able to express to the world through your business dealing, your teaching, your medical career, your fill in the blank. Or are you daily crushed by the need to somehow prove to God that he can love you? That's the opposite of the gospel. It's the opposite of what Christ taught. I mean, I think for some people, they can quickly think when they, they think about their work, they think about the yoke. That word yoke means like a wooden sort of structure that's put on top of beasts of burden. And it attaches those beasts and their strength to some sort of tool, and plow. And they whip and the beast pulls and the yoke strains and then the thing moves forward. It's a sign of your slavery. And if you're thinking about the work that you do with God, for God, through God, all of these kind of questions, if you're a student of the Scriptures, you may think about what Jesus said about how His yoke is easy. His burden is light. That, that to engage in His Olympic training facility is not to be enslaved, but to be freed. It's the upside-down logic of the gospel. And speaking about it, Tim Keller, guy who wrote the book, Every Good Endeavor, something we've been using as kind of a primary resource for this series. But he says, Jesus said that his yoke and burden, and it's the only one, that is light. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's referencing Matthew 11, that passage I was kind of alluding to. He's the only boss who will not drive you into the ground, the only audience that does not need your best performance in order to be satisfied with you. Why is this? Because his work for you is finished. Man, there's a couple of places that people kind of see as somehow more important than other parts of the Bible. And you can argue against that because we think all of the Bible is God's word, amen. But I challenge you to compare like, you know, Sermon on the Mount with like endless genealogy. There's one that you're going to read, not the other. So let's not be too precious. If you though then start studying scripture, one of the places that's going to stand out as something that seems even more significant would be the words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Jesus, God made man, delivered to the cross to die for you. And what does he say? The last thing he says, it is finished. And then he gives up his life. And as he does so, what is finished? His life? No. Yes. But he's referring to the work that he's done to save you. He doesn't say, it has begun. Let them work and bleed and hopefully live. No. He says, it is finished. 
now in the overwhelming joy of that completeness, in the overwhelming joy of the love relationship that is rock solid because of what he's taken out of the way in your sin, you can overflow in this kind of joy. But to have it, it's got to come from your seeing him. Your head, it's got all these holes in it. If we pour something in the top, it just drips right back out. We've got to say it week after week, but you've got to say it to yourself day after day, every morning. You've got to look to him and see your salvation, your real salvation. Then you start to become small and your God starts to become big and your eyes go from focusing on you and your performance and your small capability and all the great problems that are against you and the anxiety and the fear and the pride and the misery from that to a big God. You start to see the king in his beauty. And as you see the king in his beauty, he becomes big. Let your problems be as big as they are. He's bigger. And your life and your vision become filled with that glory, become filled with that possibility. Become filled with other people. You stop seeing yourself for a second and you can start seeing and loving others. That transition that's always seemed so odd to us of love God, and then he immediately talks about how you have to love people. Well, it's what happens. You start to love God, you'll start to see other people. And all the beautiful, brilliant things all throughout this creation that are worth redeeming, that are worth bleeding for. Look to the king, your salvation. Look to the king, your treasure. Skip down to verse 5. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion. Now, we see the word Zion. There's lots of ways that's sort of used through Scripture, but usually it's used as sort of a placeholder for the place where God and his people are together, where God has put his name, where he's put his redeemed. Placeholder, we as a church, we're that placeholder right now. You walk into church and it's, you know, a co-working facility. Well, okay, the people and the promise being held by and paid for under. Christ's blood makes you part of this idea, this Zion, this temple, this place where the people of God and God come together. And he's going to fill Zion with justice and righteousness. He's going to be the stability of your times. Oh, read that. The stability of your times. Abundance of salvation. What's abundance? It just means more than enough. How much do you need? Doesn't matter. We've got an abundance. There's just more than enough. More than enough of your salvation and of wisdom and of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. What we treasure. Look to the Lord daily in order for him to become your, your treasure. The rock who does not change is your stability in all of your times. Your stability with the raving Assyrians on your border, your stability, not your work. Your treasure, where your heart is, that becomes your identity. It's possible that you're going to use your work as your identity, as your treasure instead of him. Looking to him daily, the hope is that you will unseat that false God and place God back on his throne. But if you don't, if your work is who you are, your treasure, 
even if you have this sort of Christian sort of uh, veneer over it. Your work is your identity, but you kind of can sell it to yourself that way because your work is also like really hard or helps people or is something that you can kind of paint as redemptive. And so you can say you're glorifying God with it, but you're really just trying to make your own identity out of it. If you do that, you're going to experience very quickly how work just can't hold that level of meaning. When God says that he's our treasure, he has the shoulders that are big enough to really hold all of the weight of our expectation and meaning. He actually can be the one who can shoulder up under what you need. If you try and place all of that on your job, all of that on what you do, you're going to watch. Initially, it might work out okay. Because you look to job for prestige and it's given you way more than you used to have. So you gobble that up and you kind of feel full for a minute. But then you're going to need a promotion. You're going to need some kind of lateral move that actually gives you a little bit more, gives you a new title, gives you a new thing you can put at the bottom of your email. So you go for it. Get it. Woo! Then you gobble up that new prestige and it doesn't fill you up. You're eating and eating and eating and never full. Why? Because it can't hold the weight of your whole sense of meaning, the weight of your whole sense of who you are. This is seen all over the place. You don't need the Bible to see it, but the Bible certainly helps. There's a book, a booklet, uh, called The Death of Ivan Illich uh, by um, Tolstoy. And it's it's a quick read. I'd suggest it to you. Now, Tolstoy is bringing this, you know, wisdom that he's got from Scripture, but uh, he's a Christian, so from the Christian gospel. But in this book, there's this guy, and it's 19th century Russia. So think about, like, czars and aristocracy and vodka and fuzzy hats. Uh, don't think about Russia like grinding poverty and socialism and vodka and fuzzy hats. It's more the, like, older version in a Karenina kind of Russia. And Ivan is climbing the ranks through the sort of social system. He's on the social ladder, and he's going up, and he sort of plateaus at some point. 30s, he kind of plateaus at some point, and he gets mad about it, so he drives off to St. Petersburg and kind of stomps his foot, and they give him a promotion, and he then has way more, so he goes to the new place where he's going to be the judge in this new place, and he starts to use all of this money to kind of show off and, and gain this prestige, and so he gets this new suite of apartments, and he fills it up with all this furniture, nice furniture and nice things, and he's so happy, he can't wait for his wife and daughter to come and see the new place and see the new stature. And they come. Eventually they come and they see it and they ooh and they ah. But over time, what happens? All of that stuff representative of his prestige, it starts to get cracked. You know, that, that nice plate, that nice, it starts to get chipped. The nice furniture starts to get scratched. The nice stuff starts to get dusty. And what does he do? Does he apologize to these lovely people that he loves and he was hopefully doing this for? No. He rants and rages and accuses them of being the ones to squash these good things that he has. And the subplot of the whole thing is that he kind of, he has this terminal illness and he's forced to kind of work through it. It's existential. It's really good. Go read it. But what I'm saying is his, his own importance was expressed by his job. And what happens? What happens is that he gets crushed. 
He places everything, his meaning, his, his need to be something on his job, and he watches as it breaks. Christians have a response to this. The response is to look to somebody else, to something else to give you that meaning. It's going to be slow. God's bought the house, but the renovation takes time. It's going to be slow, but the Christian has the ability to look not to these things for who you are, but to him. And as you slowly, daily look to your salvation, as you slowly, daily make Zion the the one who is bringing all of this wonderful stuff, this wonderful justice and mercy and this abundance of salvation to Zion, as you have your head up towards that king and the fear of the Lord becomes your treasure, slowly you start to gain a new sense of who you are, a new identity, totally. This is even harder for people who've been marginalized or victimized by cruel parents, cruel circumstances, cruel society. So we can't judge one another. You're not starting from the same starting line. But if you have Christ and you're doing this, then slowly you're having a change that's taking place. That change begins to slowly manifest itself in in pride that gives way to humility. That painfully inflated ego that you used to have starts to give way to a true understanding of who you are. You start to get smaller, but everything else starts to get bigger. The panic that you have about whether or not your own strength is going to be enough starts to give way to a quiet confidence in the Lord's strength and His ability to bring about His glory up or down. You've got this confidence, this quiet confidence. It's not a light switch, it's a dimmer. Slowly, slowly, as daily, daily, you put your confidence in him. You look to the king and all his beauty, that dumb stupor of inactivity, of hopeless inactivity, begins to give way to a regular and consistent pattern of hard, meaningful work and lovely, grace-filled, praise-filled rest. Slowly, slowly. You look to the king. He's your salvation. He's your treasure. You look to the king and you see him as your protection. Isaiah 33, skipping down to verses 10 to 12, it says, Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. You, and now he's speaking to Assyria, you, he's speaking to your problems. You conceive chaff and give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. You can be scared of language like that. I'm okay with that if it leads you to salvation, but, but the fear that you're supposed to be feeling here is for the great God that does this. I talked about the fear of the Lord being the treasure of Zion, the, the fear of who he is, the respect for who he is, the awe for who he is. As you see that, then your confidence in his ability to protect you goes up, which means your fear, that reticence, that unwillingness to plan, that unwillingness to work, because you're not sure if, it just goes away. Speed bumps are pulled out of the road and you start to go faster. God becomes, for you, a thing that overwhelms your fears. 
That's what he's speaking. He's speaking to the enemies of his people. He stands, he lifts himself up in his glory, and all the wicked are consumed like chaff and fire. The main fears that the, the scripture addresses are fear of ruin, financial ruin, fear of death, and fear of man. That's from a guy named Ed Welch, who I trust. So argue back. We'll, we'll look at other stuff. But the three main fears that the scriptures address, fear of financial ruin, fear of poverty, fear of death, fear of meaninglessness, insignificance, going away, and fear of man. It's the pride of will people respect me like I should be respected, seeing the enemies around you and, and making them bigger and bigger and bigger and having no God on the horizon because uh, you made yourself God. All three of these fears, fear of poverty, meaningless, and insignificance, they're, they're part of why you work. You work so that you don't have to worry about money because you're going to have enough. You work so that you don't worry so much about death because it's just somewhere out in the future and you're building something, some kind of something that will last even when you are gone to be remembered by. It allows you to kind of exercise slash build slash fear of man. By that, I mean you, you see other people and they have a tremendous amount of weight. Their opinions about you affect you. You give them that power over you. Man, those fears, they, they, they're bound up in what you do because we use our job to address them. Let me tell you, all this stuff we've talked to you about when it comes to work, if you don't adjust if God doesn't become your protection for these things and you keep trying to use your, your work as your protection, man, you're going to get the stuff that you're afraid of. You're going to get insignificance. You're going to get meaninglessness. And you can say you won't get poverty because you work really hard. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you'll have a fat bank account, but will you have life? Those things are only found in the king. Those things are only found as you make that switch. You have to see the king. And, and verse 17 is what brought me to Isaiah 33 in the first place. It says, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They'll see the land that stretches afar. They're talking about now that he's eliminated this enemy that's making the world smaller and smaller and scarier and scarier. And he, he reveals himself in his beauty. Then they see the land open and ready. Verse 22, for the Lord is our judge the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, and the Lord is our savior. Listen, if you're going to work, really, and do it for his glory, you've got to do it with this vision of the king. You've got to daily put your eyes, the eyes of your heart, who you are, up to him. Away from you, away from aspirations, and up to him. You go about that by meditating. You go about that through Bible reading on a daily basis. You go about that through coming here on a weekly basis. You go about that by going into your community group and open yourself up a little bit and have other people help you to apply it. You go about that by singing songs, these songs that are going to write this stuff down into your heart, down into your soul. Do it. It's the only way. But if you will, oh, if you'll abide in that word, oh, Psalm 1, you'll become a tree planted by streams of living water and you'll produce your fruit in your season. 
In all that you do, you'll prosper. Oh, I pray that you would. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning that you would help us to look back at the cross. When we say that you are our salvation, Father, that has its foundation, its, its principal expression in what you did for us by dying to take away our sin. Father, I pray that we would look forward to the resurrection, to our hope that death really will be undone, Father, that the fall will come untrue, and that all these things, all these ideas, all of these hopes dashed, Father, will be fulfilled. And in the light of your goodness and grace, past and and future, Father, that we would look to the problems of our present and just ask that question, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? If the Lord is our God, Father, whom shall we fear? Father, please fill us with what we need to go and do your work for your glory. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.